I'd like to begin with a few different lines from a selection of Taoist poetry. that I hope will begin to set the stage for this next phase of the retreat and the spirit that we will try to bring to this next, next period. Enjoy yourself. Relax. Stop setting snares. Get delicate. Relax and follow where that leads you. Clouds may be thick or thin, Windows may be dark or bright. Take it easy. You can break the poor old dragon's jaw by pulling teeth for meaning. Stumble along as upright as you can. (laughs) And don't be avaricious. Who tries to hold what flashes in the worldly storm will drown. Let the sun and the moon handle rising and falling. I'll pretend I know nothing. What I want to talk about tonight mostly is getting delicate, learning how to stop setting snares, and how to stumble along as upright as we can. In another idiom altogether, this was described in the 5th century AD commentary, the Visuddhimagga, Path of Purification, by Buddhaghosa. It's an 838-page volume, which is all written in response to one question. The question was said to have been asked of the Buddha by a deva, a celestial being. The question is, the inner tangle and the outer tangle, this generation is entangled in a tangle. And so I ask of Gautama this question, who succeeds in disentangling this tangle? To sense our practice, as disentangling a tangle, as the ability to stop setting snares, to relinquish, to disentangle. Sometimes it seems we view practice almost in a materialistic or very consumer-oriented sense. Sometimes there's a feeling almost like we can increase our value as human beings through the process of acquisition, acquiring goodness or purity or enlightenment or understanding. It's a sense of possessiveness or owning. Rather than seeing our effort in that way, it's recognizing more that what we do need is a sense of cessation, of, of relinquishing, of disentanglement. That what we need, what we want, is a sense of peace, of rest. There's an image that's used a lot that I find very helpful. The image is that of a monkey who has one 
paw caught in, in a pool of tar. And it's, it's stuck fast. And in the effort to get free, to free that one paw, the monkey puts down the other paw to kind of try to hoist itself up. And it ends up with two paws stuck in a pool of tar. The monkey then puts down one leg and then another leg to try to remove itself from that trap. And finally, now having two, two legs and two arms caught in a pool of tar, the monkey puts down its head to try to pick itself up. Sometimes it seems like we do that. That our sense of disentangling, of, of letting go, or of becoming free of a certain trap, of a certain snare, is quite conditioned. And that what we really need to do is approach the whole problem, the whole dilemma, from a completely new and different angle, altogether. Not setting down just one limb after another in the same pool of tar. This is the difference, actually, for us between knowledge and wisdom. Knowledge being something that we can possess, we can own, we can accumulate or acquire. Wisdom being something very different. Wisdom being an ability to let go a wholly new and different way to approach our tangle, our inner and outer tangle. Not the acquiring of some information or something to possess, but a completely different way to be open, to surrender. A new and different way to relate to our lives, to our experience. What I want to talk about tonight is wisdom in this context. A way to learn to, to open to our experience, to surrender. I'd like to discuss the, the terms and the qualities that I felt constituted disentangling, or unconditional surrender. Or as one person said to me in an interview, I want to know how to send up the white flag. To surrender, to to let go, and to relinquish. To relinquish ideas and concepts and aversions and fears. To be able to surrender. The very first element in being able to do this, the very first element that constitutes the development of wisdom is establishing oneself in virtue, in moral conduct. In doing that, as we spoke of the other night, we establish and develop the strength and purity of mind, of heart, necessary for surrender. It protects us 
from simply being driven by conditioned elements of grasping or desire or aversion or fear to have a foundation that is solidly established in a sense of purity, of virtue. And the product of this is the elimination in one's being to a great extent of the agitation that comes from shame and remorse and doubt about one's actions. And it leads to the power and the strength, the ability to establish lightness and happiness as the foundation for doing the practice. So that's the first element. The second element is establishing ourselves in a sense of simplicity. Our minds can be so phenomenally complicated. And it is a complexity that is virtually unfathomable. And so when we look at a question or we ask deeply ourselves a question, sometimes we get lost, we get entangled in this complexity when it's not really necessary. And Buddha used the image of a person walking in the forest. This is actually good for hunting season. A person walking in the forest and being shot by a poisoned arrow. Somebody runs to the rescue of this person who has the arrow stuck in them and is about to draw it out when the person who's lying on the ground says, oh, wait a minute. Before you do that, there are some things I really need to know. I'd I'd like to know who shot the arrow and whether it was a man or a woman and what tribe they were from and how they happened to get the arrow. Did they make it or did they buy it? And what kind of wood was the bow made out of and what kind of string was on it and where did the poison come from and what was the chemical composition of it and is it ever used for anything else and, and on and on and on and on. The Buddha said quite sensibly that before that person would allow the removal of the arrow, they would have died from the effect of the poison. There is, there is a tremendous austerity in the practice which has nothing to do with deprivation or denial. It has to do with an adherence to simplicity, to the directness of the question Who am I? What is this about? Or what is the nature of suffering in my life? It is very direct. It's not concerned with a lot of extraneous issues apart from from those fundamental questions. To establish ourselves in simplicity. Often, as we go deeper in the practice, that sense of simplicity seems to elude us. Mindfulness begins to seem like some exalted mystical state that perhaps by the end of November we may get one glimpse of. Or letting go, that's, that becomes a, a very complicated 
kind of notion. Like, how do you let go? The Buddha said that many of the, the ways that we relate to our experience, including the mind and body itself, that attachment, that grasping, is like holding on to a red-hot iron-burning ball. Now, if we were to notice, any one of us, that we happen to be holding on tightly to a red-hot iron-burning ball, it would not be a very complicated issue of how to let go. It would not be the kind of philosophical dilemma of, let's see, should I do this one finger at a time, or uh, should I drop it all at once, or um, am I letting go faster than he's letting go or she's letting go? It's very direct. It's very immediate. Letting go is not difficult or complicated. Being sensitive enough and aware enough of our experience to recognize that, in fact, we are grasping this iron-burning ball. That is the difficulty. To be so much in touch with our experience that we can understand for ourselves the nature of that suffering in our lives. Then letting go just happens naturally. So it's very simple. It's as though the only worthwhile opponent we had was our own ignorance. And in paying attention and becoming aware of our direct experience. It's the vanquishing immediately from moment to moment of that ignorance. Established in a sense of virtue and strength and then established in simplicity, it becomes possible to understand on a more and more subtle level how to stop setting snares. One aspect of this is recognizing through our own experience the endlessness of certain attitudes or patterns or ways of thinking. And in recognizing the endlessness and the deep dissatisfaction of certain ways of being, we can then let go, relinquish. For example, the discontent that arises from a strong attachment or holding on to that which must change. You can see it very clearly in in the practice, even in the formal intensive practice. How many times have you sat here convinced you were on the verge of enlightenment? Things were so wonderful. They were blissful. And maybe the very next sitting was abysmal. It was terrible. With an attachment, with a grasping, And without an ability to control the flow of change, 
there's bound to be difficulty, there's bound to be struggle. And it's recognizing the endlessness of this. There's no one thing that will stop that flow. There's no one state that we attain and then maintain that does not change. Another example of this is comparison. With a state of mind that is comparing oneself to others or comparing present experience to previous experience or comparing present experience to future dreams of experience, there is no possibility of rest or of peace. And it is endless. It is absolutely, utterly endless. It's like being within a certain spiral and not being able to get out, except by stepping away completely and relinquishing that attitude, that approach, or that way of being. Comparing oneself to others, how can there be any peace or satisfaction? It might be fine for, say, half the day, and then somebody new walks into the room, or this person whom we've been feeling a lot of compassion for because they can't sit still for 10 minutes while we're sitting still for an hour at a time. Suddenly, in the afternoon, something's happened. They haven't moved for three hours. What's going on? All of a sudden, that edifice that we've created has crumbled. To depend upon things not changing for a sense of satisfaction or completion, it's hopeless, it's endless. So it's recognizing just various kinds of patterns that we might be engaged in that will never, by their very nature, be satisfying or bring satisfaction to our lives. And it's learning to step aside rather than going round and round and round and round, saying, you know, well, gee, I'm better than him, but I'm worse than she. So maybe if I get better than her, then, oh, but then I'll still be worse than him. You know, rather than playing it in that way, step out altogether and let go of that pattern each time that it arises, knowing that staying within it will never bring us fulfillment. Another element of not setting snares or learning how to surrender is remembering that, in fact, it is our own practice. Sometimes when we get involved strongly in resistance, it's almost as though we had the feeling that someone outside of us, of ourselves, was trying to force us to see clearly or demanding that we become free. And there's, there's rebelliousness and resistance and stubbornness. You're not going to make me do it. I'm not going to do it. And what we have to do is, over and over again, be able to renew the willingness to bring the practice, to bring the devotion or the energy for the practice from within us, from our own hearts, from our own being. To be ready ourselves, from within ourselves, to be able to be vulnerable, to open, to trust. 
to be present, to be able from within ourselves to have the energy or the motivation to surrender desires or greed, anger and concepts and fears, to be able to let go. It's possible in feeling a lot of resistance or feeling resistance at some times to investigate what is it that's being protected by the resistance? What is it that we need to protect? What is it that we're afraid of? Why are we afraid? Resistance actually is is a fantastic tool for understanding and for letting go. Because it's like a giant biofeedback mechanism in the universe that the universe is giving to us. That something is out of harmony, that something is being denied or turned away from. And so it's, it's a great opportunity for recognizing we're right at the edge of what we find acceptable. And to be able to see that, to be able to explore that. Another element in this process is to get a firm and deep personal understanding of the insubstantial nature of all phenomena, all phenomena in this world of presentation that we experience, that we are. When we do that, then it gets to be more and more possible to be to be responsive, to respond to all aspects of who we are, of our experience, with composure, really with imperturbable composure, instead of lashing out and fighting what are actually just shadows, just dreamlike configurations. Sometimes I get the sense as I sit, or as I watch you sit, that it's like going to the movies over and over and over again. And sort of like you pay your money and you buy your ticket and you walk in and you say, oh boy, it's the horror show today. Look at that. (laughs) This is a scary one. Or you pay your money and you buy your ticket and you walk in and you say, "Uh uh-oh, it's a tragedy. I didn't want to see a tragedy this afternoon. I wanted to see a comedy. And sometimes it's the tragedy, and sometimes it's the comedy, and sometimes it's the cartoon, and sometimes it's the horror movie. Who knows what it's going to be next? But it's all like a movie. It's got its own component pieces that all kind of fit together to give it its flavor or its texture. And it runs its course. And then it's done, and it's time for the next reel. It's sensing that that insubstantial nature, that the nature of, of conditioned phenomena, of formations, just as they arise, come together in a certain way, and then pass. Very dreamlike, very insubstantial. It's recognizing that in a world of constant, incessant change, Where can there be an enduring 
substantial entity anywhere. And so learning to let go. There's nothing to fight. There's nothing to struggle with. It's like fighting phantoms, fighting in a dream. There's a line in a poem by W.B. Yeats who says, who can tell the dancer from the dance? And sometimes it's like that as well. Sometimes it's kind of a raucous dance that's going on. Sometimes it's a really slow, rhythmic ballet. And it's just watching each movement of the dance and using that vehicle to find the dancer. I had this experience once when I was meditating in Benares in India. I was meditating in this monastery which was right in between the bus station and the train station. This is very urban, blighted kind of place. And in the courtyard of this place, there was one patch of garden which was about the size of two zabutans put together. And I was sitting outside there one day next to these few little tufts of grass and and stuff that was growing there. And I noticed that within the garden there was this one cabbage that was growing. And I had this amazing experience. It was really my epiphany of the time. In sitting there, just looking at the cabbage, I realized a sense of total oneness with this cabbage. (laughs) And when I saw the cabbage, what I saw was just forces of nature coming together in a certain configuration at a certain time with tentative form and tentative color, just kind of coming together, arising, being born, growing old, decaying, dying. And I recognized that I, too, were just forces of nature coming together in a certain way at a certain time with tentative form, growing old, having been born, growing old, decaying, and dying. And I became totally at one with this cabbage. And I remembered at that time when the bliss died away. The Mahayana Sutra, where all the Buddha does is holds up one flower. And that's all. He doesn't speak at all. He just holds up a flower. I felt at that time that I understood how all of the Dharma, all of the, the law of the nature of things could be revealed in one moment of seeing the nature of an event or an experience or an object or a person as just composed of elements, forces of nature just coming together in a certain way at a certain time with no self-entity beyond that or behind that. Just this constant flow of energy. It's understanding that it's almost like 
It's almost like Alice in Wonderland, that we're taking a trip through the looking glass, and suddenly we're looking at everything from a completely different angle, and recognizing that there is no substance. There is no solid thing we need to do battle with. We need to to fight or overcome or eradicate. But to understand fully the true nature of things and our own true nature. It's like if we were trying to do away with a tree in the forest, the most powerful and direct way would be to uproot it. The root of the tree of our birth and death and greed and desire and hatred is ignorance. Rather than approaching the tree and start picking off leaf by leaf and fruit by fruit, and then twig by twig, and branch by branch, and then peeling away the bark, and start cutting off inch by inch of the trunk, and finally getting to the root, we can take the direct, the direct way. The only enemy we have is our own ignorance. It is the ignorance that is the root of this tree. So all of our effort is directed towards understanding, towards seeing clearly. Not towards doing battle with all of the different fruits or leaves or twigs, but the austerity of that commitment to stay concentrated on uprooting it, on uprooting that tree. This is a quote from an Indian teacher, Nisargadat Maharaj. It's question and answer. Two questions and answers. First question is, if I am beyond the mind, how can I change myself? His answer was, where is the need of changing anything? The mind is changing anyhow all the time. Look at your mind dispassionately. This is enough to calm it. When it is quiet, you can go beyond it. Do not keep it busy all the time. Stop it and just be. If you give it rest, it will settle down and recover its purity and strength. Constant thinking makes the mind decay. Second question is, If my true being is always with me, how is it that I'm ignorant of it? And the answer, because it is very subtle and your mind is very gross, full of gross thoughts and feelings. Calm and clarify your mind and you'll know yourself as you are. The process of understanding and of surrendering is not that of trying to change things, trying to make things go away, or struggling with aspects of ourselves. It's recognizing that 
by continually making the effort to be dispassionate towards our experience, the mind will calm itself and it will change by itself. So we don't have to get involved in all of these skirmishes. We can save our energy for the main battle, which is understanding or deepening wisdom. There's a woman that we met when we first came back from India who was living near Boulder. And she said to us once, just in conversation, isn't it amazing how we would all rather stand on the quicksand of somethingness rather than the firm ground of emptiness? What we're trying to do is get a little more settled into the firm ground of emptiness. Stop setting snares. If we establish ourselves in, in, in this direction, in this orientation, then we can begin to understand and get more balanced with the relationship of effort or energy and surrender. It's recognizing that the quality of surrender or the power of surrender is not that of resignation or succumbing, resigning ourselves to things or succumbing to things is much more of a sense of being overwhelmed and of getting, of getting dull, of somehow withdrawing. It's that sense somehow um, of wanting to go to bed and pull the covers over one's head and never get up again. Surrendering, on the other hand, is more a sense of a very energized, full experience of whatever's happening, yet without interfering, without manipulating what's going on, the reality of that moment. It's very energetic and it's very full. The question becomes, how much of ourselves can we actually leave here? The way the hall is set up actually is, is a very good schematic illustration of that. It's as though you were tossing things into the middle of this room to leave them here rather than that sense of wanting to get something. Instead of going back home with anything at all, ideally, we would all go back home a lot emptier than when we came. Leave as much here as you possibly can. That's the nature, the quality of our effort. What it demands of us, it's a little bit like being born quite old and getting younger as we grow. And what it demands of us is a sense of courage, of fullness, not holding back and not pulling away, not denying. A sense of courage and immediacy It demands being 
on the very forward edge of our awareness, not sluggish and not dull, and yet without trying to change what's going on, without that tension or that judgment, that striving, that something should be happening other than what is. So it's a very crystalline kind of alertness, sense of being awake, without interfering or manipulating with what's going on. It cannot be half-hearted. It demands of us a full-hearted presence in each moment. And it's very, very pragmatic. If you can just imagine for a moment drawing a map from this place down to the center of town, of Barry, and then sitting and studying the map, and then turning the map upside down and studying it that way, and then drawing another map and a better map. Studying the map is quite different than actually walking to town. The process, the effort, is so very pragmatic. It's walking to town step after step, metaphorically speaking. Somebody once said, I can't remember who said it, some of you probably will, that there were only two things to do in the practice, in one's one's effort. The first thing is to start, and the second thing is to keep going. And that's all we need to remember. Just to start and then to keep going. An image that we use sometimes is that of walking on a tightrope. In walking on the tightrope, the most important element that sustains that, that movement is a sense of balance, obviously. And as we're walking this tightrope, different alluring images may happen all around us. There might be different sights and sounds and sensations and realizations and and ideas and memories, all kinds of different things. When we reach out to try to hold on to something, we lose our balance and we fall. We reach out to push something away, again we lose our balance and we fall. It's developing more and more that sense of balance. That is where the effort is directed. Not towards making certain things happen and other things going away, but learning how to stay balanced even as it's all arising and passing in front of our eyes. To cultivate that more and more perfect balance. And what it demands of us is a sense of commitment. We don't have to get tight and struggle and strive. But there is a certain ardent quality of surrender that is necessary. And this is the product of our commitment, of our determination. 
So more and more it's understanding that very subtle kind of effort, subtle distinction between being able to be impeccable and commit oneself wholeheartedly to the process and not get judgmental and not get distraught and not get dismayed over just the natural succession of different states. The last thing that I wanted to talk about was the component of our effort or surrender, which is trust. It's trust in ourselves and it's trust in the practice or in the process. Trust in the process so that we can have more and more energy available to us to actually pursue the practice in a pragmatic way. I can remember very clearly at some point after I'd done a number of retreats, going up to Goenka, who was the person I was sitting with at the time, and saying to him, I kind of steeled myself to go up there. And I went up and I looked him straight in the eye and I said, Goenka, isn't there an easier way? And it was really funny looking back because I, I think I sort of had the impression that if I could only catch him unawares, I could force him to admit that really there was an easier way and that it had been some, some sadistic impulse that was, that was leading him to present this path of effort. And I, I remember going up and saying that and I remember him looking at me and just starting to laugh. Because, of course, it's true that if there were an easier way that any of us knew about, that's what we would be doing. I don't, I don't really think there's an easier way. It's having a sense of trust in what's going on in the process. And the power of that is in recognizing that the teachings, the teachings of the Buddha or the teachings of the Dharma are not abstract or removed or separate from what we're doing. That it is in fact the same endeavor. It's the same process of developing understanding. I have another memory of my my time sitting with Goenka, which many of you have heard about before which was the, the early times when he would, um, on the third day or so of the retreat, when he would announce that from now on we would all be sitting and taking a vow not to move for an hour. And I would be sitting there in absolute anguish, just so much pain, terrible, awful pain, more than anyone has ever experienced in their practice. <laughs> And also on that night, he would give a talk on the law of dependent origination, which has to do with just the contact of our senses with different objects of seeing, hearing, tasting, touching, smelling, 
sensing with the body and mind objects, and how each of these moments of contact has a feeling tone to it, has a feeling quality. Feeling, in this sense, meaning an aspect of being pleasant or unpleasant or neutral. And that each moment of our experience can be seen as pleasant, unpleasant, or neutral. And that when we react with aversion towards that which is unpleasant, and clinging or grasping towards that which is pleasant, or delusion or dullness towards that which is neutral, it is right at that moment It's right at that moment that is the difference, is the critical point between bondage and freedom. That just at that place of being able to accept and open to and be equanimous towards or have equanimity towards that which is pleasant, that which is unpleasant, and that which is neutral with a clear and full awareness 
rather than pushing away and holding on and spacing out and being dull. It is right at that point that there's the possibility for freedom in each moment. And I would hear this talk and I would be sitting there with my knee pain and I would think, boy, that's so inspiring. I knew I really wanted to to, uh, find out about Buddhist meditation and I was right, you know, I was right to come to India. It's so inspiring. If only I could get rid of this pain, then I'm sure I could get enlightened. You know, and he would speak on about aversion and attachment and having an open acceptance of all of our experience. And I would think, boy, that's so fantastic. You know, I have to write to all my friends at home and tell them what, what an incredible process this is. And, you know, I could really go far in this. I know I could, if only I could get rid of this knee pain. You know, it's such an obstacle. It's really a hindrance. And he would go on and he would be speaking about equanimity. And I would think, boy, the Buddha was such an enlightened being. You know, it's so inspiring. Maybe what I'll do is, I know about this yoga ashram down in South India. Maybe I'll go there and do yoga for six months and really stretch out my body. And then I can come back and I won't have any knee pain. And then I can really go far in the meditation. And he would go on and I would go on. And he would go on and I would go on. And it was a long time before I realized that what he was talking about was in some way relevant to what I was experiencing. And that it was not an abstract, theoretical, speculative dogma that I could appreciate from afar, but that he was talking about my knee pain and all of the pleasure and pain and neutrality that I was experiencing at the time. So there's great power and trust that we can have in the process when we recognize that it is real, that it pertains to us, that it pertains to our moment-to-moment experience, just as it is, that it is not something apart or separate or meant for first-class yogis or saints of a long time ago, that it is right here and now in all of our experience. And lastly, it's the development. It's a question of developing a sense of trust in ourselves. And what this means is developing a sense of confidence. When we have confidence in ourselves, in our ability, our capacity, then what happens is that it becomes possible for everything, every moment of our experience, to be a teacher for us. Because in a state of confidence, we feel whole, rather than being in a position where we see or we view events or experiences as threatening in some way. When we can have a sense of confidence and an ability to learn from each moment, then there's no need to protect ourselves from the flow of changing events. And we can open to all elements and aspects of our experience. So it's really having as a foundation for our effort, 
for our energy, that sense of trust in ourselves, of, of faith in ourselves, that we don't have to change or undo parts of ourselves. What we need to do, rather, is to be able to experience them all with more honesty and more openness. It's not only trust in the process. It's very much a sense of having a refuge or a vehicle within ourselves and recognizing that that is the beginning and that it's not is also not speculative or, or abstract. That it is a power that we can bring gathered within us to energize and sustain all of the effort that we put forth. I'd like to end with my very favorite quote ever, which is from Trungpa Rinpoche. And it's something that I think is especially um, compelling about this point in the retreat. Trungpa Rinpoche said, it's better not to begin the path of Dharma, but once you've begun, It's best to finish. So finding yourself here somehow, (laughs) having begun, it's really best to finish. Thank you.